0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Interfaith Action podcast. My name is Stephen Slayba, and I serve as the co-director of programs and operations at Interfaith Action in Southwest Michigan. The conversation you're about to listen to was the second in our series titled Theologies of Transformation and Actions for Justice, a monthly series exploring the interfaith principles that guide our life and work. Our faith-based commitments around the ideals of common good, common home, and common life center these monthly discussions and include a variety of panelists across faith traditions, inviting people of faith across Southwest Michigan and beyond to a time of listening and contemplation as we consider the role of faith in action. The second conversation of this series was facilitated by my colleague and co-director of Faith Relationships and Strategy, the Reverend Dr. Sid who who is joined by three panelists Dr. Timothy Matavina, Professor of Theology at the University of Notre Dame, the Rev. Dr. Hugh Page, Professor of Theology at the University of Notre Dame, and the Rev. Dr. Jay Johnson, Rector at All Saints Episcopal Church in Saugatuck, Michigan. During this discussion, we asked our panelists to review Interfaith Action's 10 Interfaith Principles. You can find these principles in the description of this podcast or on our website. We hope you enjoy the following conversation. Thanks for listening.
1: Well, let's get uh, started. Uh, My name is Sid Moen. I serve as uh, co-director of Interfaith Action of Southwest Michigan. Uh, Delighted to have you join us this evening for our second uh, in our uh, 2022 series on Theologies of Transformation, uh, Actions for Justice. Um, We have been taking the month of January and this session in February to provide critiques of the 10 faith principles that were developed last year as part of a nine-month study process, looking at Pope Francis's uh, encyclical Fratelli Tutti and using that as a basis for our reflection to articulate uh, 10 uh, interfaith uh, principles. Uh, We've been testing those uh, principles from a variety of very focused theological perspectives. In January, we tested them against uh, Islamic, uh, Jewish, Uh, as well as womanist and feminist uh, theological perspectives. This evening uh, we'll be critiquing them from uh, black, uh, Latinx and queer theological uh, perspectives. After we have concluded our testing uh, of our 10 faith principles, we will then make appropriate uh, revisions and begin a monthly discussion process around each of those uh, 10 faith principles. Let me thank uh, the two individuals who facilitated and, and chaired our study process uh, last year: uh, Bobby Gant, a former uh, senior warden at All Saints Episcopal in Sagata as well as Clark Gilpin, uh, Dean Emeritus at University of Chicago uh, Divinity School in Stevensville. Um, Our session this evening will be taped uh, so that it can be translated into a podcast for use in small group discussions throughout the year, as well as contribute to being uh, part of a library of resources Uh, for uh, interfaith study and action uh, processes. Um, If you'd like to list uh, your affiliation, please feel free to do so uh, in the chat. Uh, We also ask you to mute yourself uh, unless uh, you are speaking. our work can be categorized as a component of doing public theology. Uh, Krista Tippett, the host of uh, the popular uh, program on being describes uh, the work of public theology in this way. One, it has to emerge from the vast diversity of our modern lives. And in some cases, to uproot our traditional grounds. And secondly, uh, she indicates that it needs to articulate spiritual points of view that challenge and also deepen our thinking on questions in public and political life. So we are delighted to have three guests uh, contribute to our reflections and our articulation of an interfaith uh, public theology. Let me uh, introduce our uh, three discussants uh, for the evening. Uh, first, uh, Dr. Timothy Matovina, who is chair of the theology department at Notre Dame University. Uh, he Specifically, works in the area of uh, theology and culture with a specialization in uh, Latinx religion and theology. Uh, Dr. Matovina uh, has his PhD from the Catholic University of America, and he'll be commenting uh, this evening uh, specifically from a Latinx uh, theological perspective. Uh, second, uh, guiding us this evening will be Reverend Dr. Jay Johnson, who is the rector at All Saints Episcopal Church in Sagatuck. Uh, uh, Jay has uh, served on the leadership of the Center for Lesbian and Gay Studies in Religion at the Pacific School of Religion. Uh, He is also a member of the editorial board of the Journal of Theology and Sexuality. Uh, Jay has his Masters of Divinity from the Shota House uh, Episcopal Seminary and his PhD from Graduate uh, Theological Union. Uh, Jay will be commenting specifically from a queer theological uh, perspective. Uh, Our third discussant is Reverend Canon Dr. Hugh Page. Uh, he is a member of the faculty of the theology department at Notre Dame. Uh, he is a, a professor in theology with specialization in Africana, uh, biblical uh, interpretation, as well as Africana studies. Uh, Hugh is an Episcopal priest. has his Doctor of Ministry from the Graduate Theological Seminary and a PhD from Harvard uh, University. Uh, Hugh will be commenting specifically from a black uh, theological perspective. So uh, Stephen, uh, if you want to uh, share the screen uh, with a quick refresher of our 10 interfaith principles, um, uh, Stephen has also provided a link to the full text of these uh, principles in the chat, so feel free uh, to click on that uh, link as you like now or uh, later. So, let's jump into the discussion. Uh, gentlemen, as you uh, read through and reflected on these 10 uh, principles, uh, was there anything in uh, any of them that you found discordant with your particular Uh, theological
2: uh, work. Sid, you want just to make a short, it's not a speech, just make a short little comment and have a conversation, right? Uh,
1: Precisely, yes. So anything that, you know, as you read through these, you thought, well, there's a a tension, a rub uh, with my Mm -hmm. A uh, particular field of, of, of theological understanding, theological uh, uh, conceptualization?
2: Well, I could start. Um, first, I wanna say just a couple of quick positive things. I think the principles are robust. They speak to a range of critical issues and concerns. I find them passionate and compassionate. So you know, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of good in here. I know we're looking at ways they might be sharpened. They resonate with Latinx theologies in many ways, storytelling, racial justice, migration, and so on. Maybe one comment uh, on number eight on the list. Welcoming the stranger is a phrase used there. And it, you know, it's very biblical, of course, uh, Judeo and Christian traditions. But there's also another biblical tradition that one might think of including here. Uh, From Ephesians, you are strangers and aliens no longer, but fellow citizens and members of the household of God. The notion that we welcome the stranger can unintentionally presuppose that there's a kind of a people who are the citizens, the, the, the ones who belong, the ones who count, and the others are strangers, recipients of our largesse or you know, our, our outreach or someone. Now, it's biblical. I, I am not criticizing the use of the term. It's very biblical. But in the context of the immigration struggles of sisters and brothers from other places in this country, maybe we're better off talking about you are strangers and aliens no longer, especially in the household of faith, where we're not just about welcoming newcomers. You know, the, the house of God is not holy because everyone is just because everyone is welcome the house of God is holy because everyone belongs and is a treasured member of the household by virtue of being a fellow human being. Um, So that that was just one thought. Well, I think it's it's, it's a strong statement. I'm so glad migration is in there. It's one of your principles. The way of speaking about it might speak more prophetically to the realities of the xenophobia of the world that we live in and the country that we live in. Let me pick up on what I think is a,
1: a significant comment around the term uh, stranger and uh, ask you uh, to comment from a black theological perspective with that strong tradition, let me generalize it as uh, found in uh, some spirituals, I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger. Uh, So how how do you connect to uh, Tim's uh, comment about melding together the, the different understandings of stranger.
3: So I'd like to first echo Tim's sentiments about the overall robustness and scope of the 10 aspirational statements, which I think are quite good. In terms of the question that you ask, I approach it in a slightly different way. So there is a sense in which this notion of diaspora, of living uh, constantly in a problematized relationship with a homeland, a place that is either an imaginary homeland or that represents an eschatological or teleological dream, a desired destination, or one that uh, perhaps can never be reached. I think is very much a part of certain sectors of the Black theological landscape. And here, I also think it's important as uh, your work goes on to consider the pluriformity of the Black theological tradition. There's a variety of ecclesial uh, families within it and a sense in which we're beginning at this point just to understand the vast complexity that obtains within uh, the larger Africana world. So on the one hand, it's convenient to speak about certain universals that might actually be a part of the Black religious tradition or the Black Christian tradition. On the other hand, um, it's also uh, important to appreciate how heterogeneous that experience is and how important it is to use intersectional tools that enable us to understand the extraordinary varieties of thought that exist among those who are a part of that tradition. Uh, But I would also, uh, going back to my initial point, say that this issue of being a stranger in a strange land, of seeking to find a homeland is one that within and outside of certain sectors of that tradition is uh, understood to be an ongoing challenge. Not everyone feels at home within the black church, who uh, even those who are longstanding, uh, longstanding members and considered to be pillars. Uh, it's not always been an extraordinarily welcoming place for uh, members of the LGBTQ plus community. It has often been a challenging space within which uh, women can, uh, can exist and so, you know, I think it's very important to, uh, to understand how complex uh, that tradition is and the extent to which one can uh, exist in a state of diaspora, uh, even within uh, certain of those traditions that are a part of the black world.
1: Uh, let me continue, uh, indulge me for just, uh, I think, uh, another moment or two to bring Jay into this. Uh, dialogue around uh, welcoming the stranger, no longer a stranger, the multifaceted uh, aspects of uh, of the stranger concept. Uh, Jay, a very formative book for for me, uh, written by an Episcopalian, uh, John Fortunata, many years ago, entitled. Uh, embracing the exile healing journeys for gay Christians. Uh, uh, Again, uh, somewhat connected to this uh, theme of being a stranger uh, as a temporary or perhaps uh, as a permanent uh, identity. So how do you connect to this uh, concept, I, I guess, from a queer theological perspective of stranger?
4: Thanks Sid, Um, it's a really great question. And I will uh, also echo um, what both uh, Tim and Hugh have mentioned about this list of principles and aspirations. I think they're really great and they're evocative and um, I think they're generative of a whole range of ways of thinking that can be really useful. Um, And I hope that we can also, by the way, have some conversation about how um, principles like these can be um, used in congregational life as well. I mean, the the um, I have a particular a particular commitment to that at the moment as the rector of All Saints in duck because I would really like to figure out how to bring these robust ideas of public theology more f- um, fully into congregational ministry. But that's a much larger question. But to the, your point and question, Sid. If I could just say briefly, um, uh, the word queer, of course, is a problematic one for a lot of people in, that, in this context. And sometimes that's used as a very shorthand way to talk about lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and the list, you know, the acronyms, the acronym gets longer and longer all the time. Um, and I understand that. Uh, and I sometimes use the word that way too. But I mostly use it, actually, um, from the perspective of queer theory and critical social theory, um, by which I mean uh, very broadly uh, sort of articulated, a deep suspicion of identity categories themselves, um, whether those are sexual or gender uh, identity categories or racial, ethnic, economic uh, categories. Uh, a very deep suspicion of them, precisely because of the supposition that forms of institutional power use those categories to divide and separate groups of people from each other, in effect making strangers where maybe maybe there weren't strangers to begin with, if you will. <laughs> so there's a, a a sense in which the word stranger itself needs to be defined in terms of who's using it and in relation to what set of other peoples or groups strangers to whom I mean if I were to speak more directly for um, uh, from the perspective of, of uh, gay and lesbian communities uh, that's always hazardous to try to speak for any community but just from my experience in that in that world <laughs> uh, the idea that, we're trying to be welcomed, we gay and lesbian people welcomed into the church as if we haven't always already been there is a big um, issue in uh, the history of certainly modern Christianity, which raises the whole question of who is the stranger um, and who has the power to welcome and who defines what the stranger is. Um, So I I really appreciate, I think, as uh, as Tim said, this evocation of welcoming the stranger as a foundational biblical principle, I think, in terms of hospitality as a primary kind of um, uh, religious spiritual practice. It's really important to keep that sense of welcoming and of being hospitable, but then recognizing that these categories are highly charged with all sorts of power dynamics that can be hidden sort of lurking around in there, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, Uh, thank you for that. Well, uh, uh, let me also, I may have taken us on a bit of a detour, but I'm uh, very intrigued with kind of the depth of this discussion about Stranger, but uh, any other uh, discordant, aspects uh, in this list of 10 principles.
4: Is it okay if I do, if I, I'll just keep going on that theme for just a second? Even, sure, though, I just, even though I just spoke, um, uh, the, the one thing that I wanted to, and it's related to this notion of stranger too, and also to how I just described my understanding of the word queer and the suspicion of categories and identity labels and so on. In principle number five, about the common good, I understand why the... Uh, so uh, the second sentence, democracy without values becomes relativism. And then a couple of sentences down the last sentence, we are aware that patterns of consumerism and materialism. I... I um, I sort of bristled a little bit at both of those words, relativism and materialism. Um, and I, I understand why they're in there because I've used them myself, exactly the way they're in this particular principle. But I think it might be worth, um, uh, I wouldn't recommend um, uh, removing them necessarily, but I do think it's worth inviting people into a conversation about what relativism means so its most basic meaning, I think, is that everything is related to everything else, um, so that there's no the the sense of um, there being any absolute principle, kind of uh, dissolves into this notion of well, relative to what? That's related to what I was saying a moment ago about the word "stranger." Stranger in relation to whom and to what? Um, I think relativism is actually a really important principle uh to recognize that we are all related to each other in some fashion and that we are related to institutions um and communities in all sorts of different ways um i also understand why relative relativism is being used uh, the way that it is in that sentence um but i would invite uh, i think conversation from groups about um how we could engage in a much deeper understanding of how we are related to each other apart from categories and labels. And then real quickly, because I'm talking too much here, but materialism. <laughs> As a Christian theologian, I would really like to say material reality is great. <laughs> you know, like the, uh, the foundational principle of the incarnation in Christian tradition suggests that there is a, a deep uh divine embrace of the physical world, of our bodies, of material reality. Um, and I would like to see Christian communities um reclaim being materialistic in a way, uh, of being careful about how we use the word so that we're not we're not falling into the trap of saying, you know, um spirituality is immaterial or spirituality is non-bodily or something like that because our bodies are good and the material world that God has created is good. So um, how can we uh, make sure that we don't fall into that sort of um, ma- the material world is somehow bad? Uh, uh,
1: thank you for that. And and Hugh and Tim, uh chime in here because the two terms uh, materialism and relativism of uh, which Jay highlighted are terms that uh, Pope Francis uh, consistently uh, uses uh, in his speaking and which we lifted uh, verbatim from Fratelli Tutti. Uh, they are kind of core concepts uh, that the Pope references. So how how do you connect uh, to those terms?
3: I'll yield to my colleague, Tim, and then I'll <laughs> offer a, a comment or two.
2: I'll, uh, I'll maybe say something about relativism because uh, uh, I, I do think the Pope, uh, Pope Benedict and then Pope Francis, maybe they use it a little differently than Jay did. Uh, relativism, not in the sense of relations between people, but relativism in, in terms of um, everybody's the source of their own truth. you know, Benedict spoke of a dictatorship of relativism. Everybody's free to believe whatever they want. There's no, there's no way to find a common ground or you know, a search for a common truth. I wonder if that's still, I mean, maybe someone could debate whether that was the case then. I, I think he was certainly, I think that's certainly true of, of modern people. Many of us think, you know, it's my, people will use words like, it's my truth, or that's, you know, truth. And of course, I don't think people are just talking about the fact that all beliefs, all truth claims are contextualized, you know, there, there is, you know, sociology of knowledge, there are power dynamics in the creation of knowledge. But even beyond that, there are ways where people sort of just feel like, well, truth is whatever I decide it is, without going through the hard work of debating with one another. But I wonder if we're actually still in that situation in the age of Trump. I don't see relativism so much of that type where everyone says, well, to each his own, you believe what you believe, I believe what my believe, that's my personal choice, that's your personal choice. No, on the, on the contrary, our politics today are fraught with people not who are saying I have my truth and you have your truth relative to the person, Benedict's use of relativism and Francis' use, No, I have my truth, the conspiracy theory that I just heard, and it is the truth. You are wrong. And the way we're going to defend this truth is we're going to all go on the same social media sites in a very tribal way, uh, create a truth which may have no basis whatsoever in reality, and be completely unopened to any kind of dialogue, debate, or conversation. So what Benedict called the dictatorship of relativism, I wonder if we're far from that now into, you know, what some call the post-truth age of Trumpism where, where people just, you know, you you, you use raw power to create truth and to impose it. Now, again, I'm not saying we've never been there. You know, colonialism has plagued this, uh, this this hemisphere for 500 years now. Mm. And the imposition of truth has been a long-standing part of our history, but, our politics today are not plagued, I don't think, so much more with relativism. They are plagued with dueling monologues, which are all mm. about mm. getting my tribe together to impose my truth on the others. Relativism looks like uh, a thing of the distant past, even though that, that was kind of the conversation just 10 years ago. Um, so I, I'm very concerned about this common good question. I don't know how Jay would respond to what I'm saying, or he will have some other thoughts, I'm sure, but how can we talk about a common good in a society that is just fraught with the kind of polarizations we're facing now, and people of faith like this group, how do we intervene to help our own people participate in this reality in a way that will lead us anywhere near compassion and justice? Uh,
1: You, some... uh comments on this topic, and then also I'll in, invite you to comment on uh, any item or items that are glaringly absent from our 10 principles.
3: Well, I don't have a lot to add to what Jay and Tim have already articulated. I concur with Jay about the you know, at least within Anglican circles, the fundamental goodness of creation and uh, the importance of affirming the the sweetness, the the wonder that is uh, hardwired into our day-to-day reality. I think that's something that uh, within certain sectors of the Black theological tradition is clearly affirmed. Uh, And also uh, this idea that there's not a compartmentalization of the spiritual from the physical, that they interpenetrate. And that uh, there is a wonder that is associated with everything that we see, everything that we touch, everything that we think. Um, I also uh, agree with uh, with Tim. You know, with regard to the fraught nature of truth claims that uh, compete in our uh, in our modern economy of ideas, and there is an incredible amount of tribalism that. Has to be overcome at some point in the future. And I don't think that we're at a point where we're doing a very good job of, of managing it. I don't know that uh, many of our religious institutions are equipped to, uh, to tackle what we're actually seeing. And so we're creating strategies as we go along. Um, you know, I never thought that I would see the kind of uh, acrimonious debate. Uh, that we have just in terms of the public health sphere, uh, but you know it is what it is at this point. We have to figure out how to navigate our way through it. The one thing, though, that I think is—I um, don't know that it's a glaring absence, but it's certainly something that needs to be uh, taken into consideration when we look at the the heterogeneous um, thought worlds that are a part of black theology and I don't see reflected in these 10 statements the what I would call the afro pragmatist tradition which often aligns itself with the black secular humanist tradition and which some have often called an afro pessimist tradition which I think is much too harsh a categorization (laughs) but you know I'm thinking of the work of someone like ta Coates in Between the World and Me and his uh, rightful, I think, critique of, you know, this uncritical embrace of Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, American vision of, of the dream and of dreamers and not looking at the ways in which that dream uh, has failed to be realized in 21st century America. <clears throat> Um, you know, I also think of the work of someone like Anthony Penn, who has raised questions about uh, those who have looked at what they have seen in uh, in the larger uh, realm of, uh, of Christianity and, you know, sought not to embrace it, uh, sought to see humanity as the measure of all good. So I think we have to make room in these principles for those who conceive of uh, the religious sphere in ways that are not necessarily theistic, uh, strictly speaking. Um, You know, you think about the number of African American Unitarians who are part of our community and the various uh, theological thinkers and philosophers and so forth who've raised really profound questions about the close association between, uh, as Tim has said, the colonial enterprise in the Western world and uh, forced coercion uh, of subjugated peoples. And if we're going to start uh, doing theology from the bottom up and asking uh, inconvenient questions about those things that subjugated peoples have been uh, forced to adopt, then I think we have to make room for those who uh, have considered themselves for one reason or another uh, to be outside of the Christian mainstream and why and uh, how we make room for their voices to be heard and honored.
1: Excellent point. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, uh, Jay, Tim, any uh, glaringly absent uh, components that uh, you would add? One, oh,
4: go ahead, Tim.
2: Uh, Jay, you can go ahead. Sure, I'll go next.
4: Uh, Go ahead. Okay, <laughs> um, I don't, um, this may not be necessarily a glaring absence so much as a, um, a suggestion for a kind of revision, perhaps. As I looked at these 10, uh, and this became even more apparent when uh, Stephen put up on our screen that the list, the, the shorthand version of the list, mm-hmm. what became really apparent when I saw that list, but I was thinking about it even reading the longer list. Um, One of these is not like the others. (laughs) And that's number seven. Seven is uh, stated uh, primarily as a negative principle, that we stand against racism and systemic exclusion, where all the other principles are framed in some kind of affirmation um and it seems to me like um i I think it would be really useful to begin uh uh that principle number seven by turning it into first of all an affirmation by saying something like we value racial and ethnic diversity as a way of manifesting god's own creative something or another i don't know what it would be i'm making this up off the top of my head right now but um and that the, the ways that we differ from each other are ways uh, that mark um, pathways toward insight and healing and flourishing, something of that nature. In other words, um, I, uh, um, a robust affirmation of uh, how we are different from each other while still being profoundly related to each other, I think is something that I tried I've tried to learn from queer and critical social theories. Um, And I think it's really useful so that we don't, we're not talking about um, aiming toward a so called colorblind society that we keep sort of hearing about in various uh, sort of uh, uncritical ways, but um, a really robust affirmation of our racial, ethnic, maybe also sexual and gender diversity, I don't know, but a, a really Uh, embracing of our differences might be useful there because if you look at the list that Steven put up by the way you look at it and you go wait are we are we affirming racism and exclusion or are we against it because it's just it's sort of just listed there
1: yeah a provocative point and we'll we'll have to do a a lot of study on that Uh, uh, this is uh, not an apologetic but to provide some understanding why in fact, it is the one negative. I think we were somewhat influenced by an earlier study of Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Uh, and yeah, yeah. kind of calling out yeah. racism. And then uh, Robert uh, Jones uh, with the Public uh, Religion Research Institute who uh, comments uh, over and over again about racism being at least U.S. Christianity's original sin and an original sin that it has uh, not yet uh, confessed. Oh for, sure. with. oh, for sure.
4: Oh, for sure. And I'm not saying that we get that you should get rid of an, a, a direct, you know, uh, repudiation of uh, racism and systemic exclusion, but I think giving the, the affirmative reason why, right? That we- That's very helpful. We, we affirm the diversity because and
1: therefore, right? Very helpful. Thank you. Uh, Other glaringly absent or perhaps just absent uh,
2: components. (laughs) I I had another one. Um, Number nine, our faith traditions are grounded in preferential concerns for the poor, the vulnerable, alleviation of poverty, homelessness, and so on. so I'm speaking now from the perspective of liberation theologies of Latin America and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the the, the primary uh, theological concept is the preferential option for the poor. Mm-hmm. This I'm, I'm sure you know is is, is grounded in good uh, compassionate desire. But it sounds like we're committed to do works to help the poor. You know, mm-hmm. as if they're the object of our mm-hmm. mission, our action. When in fact the theological concept of preferential—I I presume I'm, I'm saying this to people who already know a lot what I'm what I'm about to say—you know—it's the idea that Jesus's ministry stressed the love of God for all, but first and foremost to those most marginalized, which you know was material poverty, but other kinds of marginalization as well—race, gender, and so on—as we're talking about tonight. It's involved with um, empowering those who are marginalized, to be voices for themselves, to, to solve their own problems, so to speak, and to, to be, you know, to, to recognize them as the active agents of history that they are. Uh, in our, you, a Catholic, I'm Catholic, and the Catholic bishops economic pastoral of years ago, they said one of the ramifications of this was, we must ask economic, political, and social questions, and first and foremost, how does this appear to the poor? How are they among us? How are we accompanying them and letting, you know, listening to their voices as the guidance of what needs to be done to address particular issues? So, um, you know, I think this is a good principle to have. I I would maybe wanna see it more talking about empowerment, engagement, uh, uplifting of marginalized persons and voices. Um, And it it could come across perhaps, I'm sure unintentionally sort of sound like, you know, we're going to do good actions and we're going to help all very good stuff. Uh, but of course the option for the poor is really about, it's about ultimately about the revelation of God. Where does God speak in the world? First and foremost, God speaks among marginalized peoples. That was Jesus's way. That's supposed to be our way as his disciples. Uh, so that, that idea could be, uh, maybe captured more robustly in the way this is worded. Excellent.
1: Uh, good, good point. Uh, I mean, throughout this evening's uh, discussion, uh, you've been, uh, all three of you, referencing a kind of, of a fuller nuancing of some key terms from uh, stranger to uh, preferential option. Uh, so thank you uh, very much for that. So uh, given our time, let's uh, move on to kind of the uh, third question, which uh, Jay, in fact, uh, introduced a bit earlier uh, do you find that these principles can lend themselves to the person in the worship uh, space, uh, uh, for Christians, we often talk about, you know, the person in the pew, uh, but, uh, do they translate uh, in a, in a way that is simultaneously transformative, but also activist in nature?
3: I'll start off. I think that they have the potential so to do, but if I'm going to think about my own experience as a a sometime uh, Sunday worship leader and homilist, I would have to say that we've got a long way to go, at least uh, within uh, the larger Christian fold of translating complex, theological ideas and rationales for activism on behalf of those that are in need, and are marginalized. The work is a heavy lift. And I have to acknowledge that, you know, after more than three decades in, uh, in this kind of work, that you know it's not something that those of us who go out into congregations are equipped to do well, and it's not something for which there are explicit rewards. And uh, as a result, uh, I don't think it's something that we can claim credit for having done an extraordinarily good job uh, at. So I think that there's a good bit of uh, a good bit of work left to do, preparation left to do. But is it uh, potentially worthwhile? Absolutely. And I would say that not just the future of our respective uh, religious traditions depends on it. But I think the the future of a, of a global community in which we see our traditions as resources that promote the common good collectively. Um, Goodness, the extent to which we still have work to do on that I think is pretty great.
1: Uh, Tim and Jay, uh, any comments on that? And as uh, Tim and Jay are commenting, uh, for those of you who wish to uh, ask a question or uh, make a comment, uh, raise your hand or uh, place it in the chat. And then uh, my colleague and our co-director, is Steven Slawba. Uh, will be facilitating uh that uh conversation tim jay any uh, final comments on kind of the the person in the worship space
4: well i i've got way too many things to say about that so i i will just um i was smiling when i was listening to you hugh because um Uh, it's not only of course that there are no explicit rewards for doing that work say in the pulpit but there's often a cost to uh be paid by pastors who are trying to do that kind of public theology work in the congregation bobby knows very well bobby's here in the congregation it's my privilege to serve and you know i where i've had to start is by um uh Calming the nerves of people who are worried that I'm being political uh, when I talk. You know, that's the the old saw about that. And so, starting in a place of you know, what's the difference between being political and partisan, for example. Um, but just the notion that that theology has bearing on who we are in the public square is absolutely vital, I think, to every religious tradition today in terms of what we're trying to do, but especially Christianity, probably, and it's fraught. Oh, my goodness, is it fraught in our country now um, for all sorts of reasons, but I, I um, well, these principles, I think, would need to be What do I want to say? I, for a lot of people here, I would venture to say there's not enough Jesus uh, in them for a Christian congregation to feel like they can find themselves and their faith in it. So um, that's a backdoor way of saying there's still a lot of the Christian congregations haven't done any interfaith work, generally speaking, at all. So the Um, the need to try to figure out how we have interfaith conversations, and then how to take those conversations into the public square, that's a huge heavy lift, like Hugh said. I've said
1: too much, but
2: there's a lot of work to do.
1: Jim, uh, final comments, and then uh, we'll turn it over to Stephen. Let me
2: be brief so we can hear from the group. Um, Like what's already been said, by the two pastors. I'm the guy in the ivory tower, so I should be shorter on this one. Uh, the, your second point on storytelling, I think, is, is reflected in what Hugh and Jay just said. I mean, how do you get to folks who maybe just aren't anywhere near these principles? The storytelling is so important. Uh, when, when we, in Latinx theology and ministry, when we're dealing with people who are basically just very xenophobic and thinking, you know, they're criminals, they're coming over, here, taking our jobs it's very hard to break through that external wall. And one of the only ways is just tell stories. If you humanize the the person who's supposedly the stranger or the other, uh, you might have some chance of pulling off the miracle of of converting a heart. Um, I would also say from the Latinx perspective on this, uh, you and uh, Jay have spoken very well about the pulpit. Uh, Latinx, I think a gift that our Latino, Latina sisters and brothers bring Mm -hmm is there a sense of public ritual and devotion? You know, the the devotion to Our Lady of Guadalupe, public rituals of Christ's passion, uh, posadas and other things that they do. There are ways that public ritual can speak uh, in the material sense that Jay was mentioning before. They kind of bypass the head and speak to the heart and speak to the soul. They allow you to actually walk with Jesus on Good Friday. I mean, as a non-Latino myself, I. I have been very moved by participating in these kinds of public rituals. And I think it's a beautiful gift um, that they give to Christianity and to the wider society in this country. So are there ways, and they're not the only ones that do this, African-Americans, the spirituals, you know there are ways where we've had embodied forms of prayer uh, that have touched people. So are there ways that worship styles that are embodied and deep and get people to think beyond, you know, the polarized sets of thoughts that are, you know, ruling our minds right now and ruling our airwaves, and to get people to see and feel and think in a new way. uh, That's easier said than done. I'm not saying, oh, there, I've said it now, now you pastors, you got it, go do it. (laughs) It's easy to say it's hard to do, but I do think it's something we gotta keep working on if we're really gonna incarnate these kinds of principles into into the very fabric of our lives and our communities.
0: All right, well, thank you so much. Um, This has been extremely enlightening uh, and has raised a lot of excellent questions, Um, but we wanna hear from anyone else who's here tonight. Um, If there are any comments or questions, um, feel free to uh, raise your hand or even unmute and and, uh, be happy to hear from you.
2: ask a question. Clark, are you the Clark Gilpin that was in Chicago all those years? I was all those years. Yeah, that's right. How are you, Tim? Very good. Nice to see you on this call and involved with this group.
5: Well, uh, so now that I've been called out, let me <laughs> say one thing. Um, I do think you're zeroing in on point number two, storytelling is absolutely crucial, Um, and in some ways, uh, the stories that we tell help us think our way through the complexities of some of the relational language that we spent the first part of our time talking about. Uh, Who is the stranger? Uh, I mean, in some ways, you know, there's a long tradition of of, uh, of talk about conscience in the Christian tradition in which I, I almost need to become a stranger to myself in order to discover myself. So these, these terms by which we try to figure out our the dignity of our diversity, uh, the common life, uh, require stories to show that the, each one of these words has a kind of richness that I think many local congregations today don't have the equipment to unpack. And yet, if you took them to Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago, they would unpack that play. And I think, uh, so, so my hope is that as we do move with these principles um, into local congregations, uh, into groups of interns, perhaps a variety of things, that that the language of religion can become like uh, the drama that we all see together, but that each of us takes away a slightly different message. And it's that diversity that creates the idea that is out in front of every one of us. It's out ahead of us. It's not my idea that's the truth. It's not even your idea. It's that idea that we create when we bring our different perspectives together. And uh, so I I, I totally agree with things that you have said about, uh, well, all three of you, about the, the need to think about uh, what the common life is like in a highly plural world. And I think the stories of religion, in fact, are are a huge resource that we have not delved into enough to accomplish that. So.
1: uh, Given time, perhaps that's an appropriate word of closing (laughs) because it also connects us Two Fratelli Tutti in which uh, the Pope, uh, in referencing the storytelling of Jesus, uh, centered the entire encyclical on the story of the Good Samaritan as a means for understanding uh, uh, common good and and tenderness and compassion uh, and justice. Uh, So uh, to all of you who have participated to our wonderful discussions. You've given us an an additional list uh, to consider. Uh, We will uh, reconvene as a a drafting group, uh, revise our principles based on the commentaries from our January session and from tonight's session. And then in March, on uh, March uh, 28th at 6 p.m., we will uh, begin uh, 45-minute discussion segments uh, beginning with our first principle, continuing throughout the calendar year uh, and completing uh, discussions on each of the 10 principles. So uh, to all of you, thanks for your participation tonight. Uh, To Tim, you, and uh, Jay, Thank you for inspiring, uh, challenging us, and giving us lots more uh, reflection to do. Thanks again to everyone and uh, good evening.